the first time my mother told me that we had to find out where all the bathrooms were in the mall was as a child. It was called Alderwood Mall. It was near where I grew up. And she said to me, get over here, creepy kid. And she opened up this pamphlet she got from the mall, Alderwood Mall. And in there was a listing of all the 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 mall stores. And she's like, grab a red pen. So she had me grab a red pen. And she's like, now I want you to do me a favor. I want you to rank what the cleanest toilets are because if I get the shits when we're about to go out to the mall, I just need to know where I can take a crap where it doesn't stink so much and people are going to hear me. So I used to have to measure how far the toilets were and how nice they were from JCPenney and from Macy's and Nordstrom's because what I didn't know, of course, was that when her IBS would explode. And her IBS was something that we always talked about in the family, about the fact they used to shit her pants. Uh, she said, I refuse to wear depends, but, you know, I just, I have the craps. So she had this system where she'd get up in the morning and she's like, oh, God, it's terrible to be alive. Then she'd have a cup of coffee and she'd stare at me. And she'd be like, I'm going to crap my pants with this cup of coffee, but it just tastes so good, doesn't it? So we'd go downtown to downtown Seattle. And it just kills me now that I see all these Starbucks because I went to the original first Starbucks as a child downtown and it was in Pike Place Market and we used to walk in had creaky floorboards my mother used to walk in and my mother was delightfully mentally ill so which means she was something which now I prize had no boundaries I have no boundaries and so she would just say things like she had no filter like whatever she felt she would say now I feel she should have gotten in touch with her emotions before she spoke but she would speak so she walked into Starbucks and she would often say because they knew her you know they I noticed the look when people saw my mother one out of 10 would like be excited. The other nine would cringe because they knew what was coming. And she'd be like, hi, I'd like to have a large coffee. I just hope I don't shit my pants today. And she'd be like, I don't know what the fuck you put in your coffee, but it makes you shit. Have you noticed that? And you'd find the one in 10 <laughs> would be like, what's your name? Do you want to hang out? The other nine would like, you know, run back. The history in my family, you know, there we talked a little bit about legacies on the last episode, but I mean, the, the legacy that the women in my family in particular tend to pass down. Actually, I could say on my father's side as well, so the males on that side, but we have a history of mothers being jealous of their daughters and having children to look good or to be in a marriage. And so... Rolling this back a little bit, my grandmother was not the nicest person. I'll leave it this way. I did not cry at her funeral. She had moments of clarity where she was okay. She was diabetic, over 300 pounds, and she had lost her leg probably about three years prior to her dying. And the family joke, or at least mine was, she has one foot in the grave, right? So there was always that. And she just always needed care. She was the queen of the family the so-called matriarch of the family, and she acted every bit of that. So she had five children, four girls and one boy. The boy was the eldest. My mother was the eldest woman. And my grandmother had them do everything. So wash the walls, clean everything, and she would sit there and be the queen of her domain. She didn't work. She did nothing, and the girls were always doing this. On top of that, she always pit them against each other. So they have this really interesting dynamic on my mother's side where the sisters will fight each other for little morsels of a thank you or some kind of self-esteem. So if one is winning, the other one will kind of start tearing them down. And a few years ago, maybe several years ago, they started noticing this and they changed the dynamic, but my mother was removed. She got married when she was 18 and left New York, moved across the state, landed in Oklahoma. So she had left the dynamic where it was, where they were pitted against each other. 
Now, my mother learned how to be manipulative throughout this entire course. My grandmother was a certain way. She read her. She mapped her very well, meaning that she could say, okay, I'm going to do this to make my mother happy so that I can get away with doing something else. And so she was extremely manipulative in that way, and that's the way that she learned how to get through life. Hi, I'm Michael C. Bryan. And I'm Jennifer Ho. We help people understand the purpose of their pain. We've been through a lot and we've come out the other side. We talk about everything and anything. Especially what other people are afraid to talk about. Life is an invitation to do whatever the fuck you want. And it's definitely time to look at how we're playing the game. We held ourselves back for years. But now we're mostly past all of that shit. Mostly. Welcome, Welcome to, to Stripped. Stripped. So she'd grab her coffee and she'd lick her lips, you know. Did you know that when you lick your lips, it's um, a calming thing? There's sensors outside your lips that if you run your hand over your lips, it'll calm you down during a panic attack. Isn't that interesting? So well, touching yourself, but that's a different story. Touch yourself and touch your lips. Welcome to Stripped, where we give you advice on how to calm down by pleasuring yourself in a mall. <laughs> Anywho, so my mother and I used to go to the mall, and she had this giant map, and we'd have to... We'd go in the mall, like the fabric barn, and she'd buy stuff. And she'd say to me, oh, it's coming. Pull out the map. So I have to pull out the map. And we'd have to find the closest place because she'd shit her pants if she didn't get to the bathroom in time. So I had to go out. Like, she'd be in the fabric barn buying something to buy my dad, you know, like, make pajamas. And I'd have to go out and scope the bathrooms. And then I'd have to look to see how far they were from the store so it didn't smell. Because when she smelled, it smelled like, you know, an atomic blast. To this day, I have this horrible thing that happens where before I do something wonderful, I have to shit terribly. And I used to tell this to my ex, and he'd be mortified at this, and everybody would. But there's always one person in a group that I find has a secret IBS thing, the anxiety. So I used to study IBS stuff, that shits of nervous people smell horribly because there's a chemical in there. And so the shame today that I have of this, it's the same thing as my grandmother when she used to go with us to the mall with my mother and I. And she'd be like, Joyce, Really? You got the shits again? Can't you get a control of this? What's wrong with you? My mother used to be, you're the one that taught me how to have the shits. And my, my grandmother would be like, I didn't teach you how to have the shits. And my mother would say in the middle of the fabric barn, oh, so fucking men in front of me as a child, that didn't make me a little anxious, you don't think? I was like four or five when I heard this, right? Just normal childhood fodder. And, you know, my mother was very cognizant of the effect my mentally ill schizophrenic mother was having on her anxiety. She was always high strung. She was so high strung, she took me to therapy the first time when I was seven. And she said, it's time we went to family therapy. So I went into therapy. Virginia DeChico, I'm sure she's dead so I can say her name now, was the family therapist at the time. And um, it, was in the, it was in the Pacific Northwest, the family therapist. And I remember behind Virginia was a totem pole behind her that had a scowling, <laughs> like, like, like eagle staring at me the whole time in therapy. So I equate therapy with an eagle for some reason. And Virginia said to Joyce, so Joyce, why, is, why are you here with, with Mike and, and your husband? Like, what do you want to talk about? My mother's like, well, I just, I don't know how to get in touch with my anxiety. I don't know what it is. And the therapist, Virginia, said, well, where do you think the anxiety comes from? My mother, she said to me, it's my, my mother. My mother caused me to feel this anxious. So when she met my father and she moved cross-country, she was stuck in that snapshot and still knew how to manipulate the situation. She was not a dummy, though. She was one of the women that played dumb, but you knew that she wasn't 
and she was extremely transparent about it, but nobody said anything. So growing up, I, I grew up in this dynamic where I had the Asian father who was extremely driven and came here with no money in his pocket, decided that he needed to get an education. He ended up with a master's in business, and then he got a doctorate in pharmacology. And my mother was put through school for my father for nursing. Now, she didn't graduate high school, but she flew through nursing. So she had absolute brains, but she was street smart. And so any money that my father had brought in after he graduated and got a great job as a pharmacist, my mother would soon go shopping and spend all the money that he brought in. So I always saw this dynamic of one giving and one taking. There was never a 50-50 in my mind. But my mother to me was really Wonder Woman. I've always looked up to Wonder Woman ever since I was a little girl in the 1970s. You see Wonder Woman, you're like, oh my gosh, that's my mother. But as I got older, I started seeing other parts of her, the manipulation. I remember one time we went to Ringling Brothers. They came through Oklahoma. And my mother says, hey, you know, let's go check out. She was always daring and, and willing to be outrageous in certain situations. And she saw the train come in. She says, hey, come on, we're going we're gonna to lead the parade. Watch this. So she goes into the, one of the train cars and she meets a clown, literally a clown, and starts hitting on him flirting with him, all of these, like, really, and I was probably about eight. I just have to say, ew. Right. I was probably around eight or nine, and I saw the way that she was using her womanhood in order to manipulate the situation. And so I'm laying witness to this, and he brings us into his own personal space, living space, on this train in a circus, right? And he's giving us those giant oversized ties, and he's letting us try on his nose, and he's telling us all about this stuff. And she's like, oh, it's so sweet. It's so nice that you're letting us back here with her accent. She's from New York, but she had an oaky accent at the time. And so she played stupid, and he ended up talking the ringmaster into letting us lead the parade into the circus. She said, what's your biggest fear? I'll never forget, it was a really, really bright day, which was unusual in Seattle, because, you know, second highest suicide rate in the country because of the fucking weather. And it was, light was streaming in. I remember my mother looked at me, and she looked like, her face looked like melted wax. I always remember my mother being very old, because everything was kind of dragging down with her. And she looked at me, and I was just a kid, seven, and I look up absolute, I always, I always want to say abject terror, but I don't know what that really means. I like how it sounds, abject terror. With abject terror, what does it mean? Don't know, but it sounds good. She stared at me, and this look of just horror in her eyes, she's like, I'm afraid I'm going to give it to Michael. I'm afraid I'm going to make him like me. And I remember at seven, I thought, well, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to be here. Flash forward to about three years ago in therapy. And my therapist, he's this little short man. I want to say his name, but I probably shouldn't yet. And from Brooklyn. And when we first met, he was very tough. And I'm like, okay, can we just be clear on something? Regina, you need to pull that shit back because you can't be tough with me. I'm too soft. You can't do that. And he's like, all right, all right, I'll be nice. So he softened it. And three years ago, he said to me, he's like, he was, he was always very nice and calm, little Buddha sitting in his chair, tiny little thing, you know, like a pocket therapist. And he looked at me and he just, after like a, you know, I'm always very entertaining in therapy, clearly. He looked at me and he's like, can I ask you something? How much longer are we going to sit here and listen to you think of your mother? Telling me you don't think of your mother. Do you have her vagina? Do you have her breasts? You're not your mother. How old are you? 52 now? How fucking old are you? 
And I said to him, I said, I'm not my mother. I don't think I'm my mother. He's like, yeah, you do. You think you're destined to be her. You, you need to figure this out because you're doomed. You're getting better. You're getting mean. You're getting tougher than you need to be. You need to figure something out because you're fucking your whole life up. What's going to happen? You're going to turn 55 and you're like, oh, I shoulda, woulda, coulda. Come on now. How much money you fucking paid me? And I was like, he can't be right. So I went home and smoked a lot of weed and thought about this and I'll find the answer. And I thought, the next day I thought, I, I did then and I, I, this is what I've exercised from me. I was always, always waiting for myself to go as crazy as my mother did. I learned at a very young age that this is actually a mode that you can adopt. Manipulation works. I saw my mother do it time and time and time again. She would get free things all the time. She would manipulate men and women sometimes into giving us, her, whatever it is that she wanted, um, including my father. And the clowns are hot. <laughs> this one was not. <laughs> So, I mean, that was my earliest memory of my mother's manipulation. And so, you know, time had gone on. My parents got divorced. I'm sure we'll get into that whole, like, middle section a little later. That's really where the trauma started. But when I moved to New York, I saw the way that my grandmother was. I never had witnessed. I spent every summer in New York. So I never witnessed until I was old enough, I think, to understand how manipulative and really just downright evil my grandmother was to everybody else because she started doing that to me. And I was her caregiver at the time, which is very interesting. So I got to see how my mother turned out the way she did. I also got to see how my aunts adopted different ways. And so depression runs deep in my family. I believe my grandmother was depressed. My father, my grandfather, her husband, had actually been sent to a mental hospital because he had had a nervous breakdown. He was a brilliant man, but they had done ECT. And so whenever he came back after the shock therapy multiple times, he was a different person. So, yeah, all of these dynamics were working against my mother's side of the family. And so I saw how each one of the girls had self-esteem issues. Some of them would look for love everywhere they could, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a safe, good love. It was a very... My Aunt Kim, I remember going to her place in Queens, and she had masks. I can see it vividly, masks all over her wall and posters all over her wall. And not until later did I find out she had those hanging because her husband beat her so bad, there were blood splatters on the wall. So they were looking for love everywhere. Some of them and most of them were overweight. They were protecting themselves. And so that was part of the legacy that was passed down to the women. And so when I started having my panic attacks, probably my first one was... 22, 23. You had them kind of late. I had them late and yes. So when you say you have them late, for me, I went through quite a bit of trauma. And so recently what I've learned, and this is just recently, so it's really helped me a lot to understand this, is that my stress level, the amount of stress level that I can take is higher than somebody else that doesn't experience trauma. So the anxiety, the worry, the fear, it always came because I thought that because I had been raised in a high-strung family, a family where we always got very mad at people on the airplane who used to wear flip-flops. We're like, oh, great, the plane's going to go down. I'm going to have to save your ass. You can't wear shoes. We used to be very annoyed at those people. I hate flying so much. The high-strungness, I thought that was going to be my doom, but I didn't realize was, of course, that <laughs> you can be high-strung and charming. And the vigilance can 
go to a great degree to help you in life. But being raised as a kid who was always plotting where my mother was going to shit next because she couldn't get control of her anxiety, who was afraid at 52 that he was going to become his mother and was watching his whole life fade because he thought for sure that was him and couldn't get out from underneath that, watching my mother scream at my grandmother in a fabric store, a fabric barn of all places, she had a punch card. Punch me, she used to say. She's like, do you like that? Punch me. He's like, I'm not going to punch you, Joyce. Go ahead. I thought that was my destiny. And because of that, you know, the stories that we'll relegate here on Strip, the podcast, the thing we'll relegate here is, I remember one summer in the 90s, I was on the, <laughs> my favorite story is, I was with um, this drag queen. We went to go see The Mirror Has Two Faces with Barbara Streisand. And we used to love to say Two Faces because she wrote it, produced it, directed it, edited it, cinematography, gaffed it. She was everything. Fucking movie. And we had taken ecstasy before we went to go see it, the Zigfield, right? So I'm in the Zigfield and I'm tripping watching a Barbara Streisand movie. I'm like, this is the gayest thing I've ever done. And we step out and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm rolling watching The Mirror Has Two Faces with Jeff Bridges and Barbara Streisand and those nails. And we got out of the Zigfield, which is now gone, unfortunately. And I went to a club and I did some coke and all this stuff back in the 90s, God bless them. And I was higher than a kite. And I crashed at a friend's apartment that I woke up the next morning and I said, I have to calm down because I was feeling kind of anxious, but I didn't know what to do with my emotions, you know. So I went to go see, of course, a movie that everybody had a panic attack in, The English Patient, which is a boring movie. And I'm watching it going, I'm having an anxiety attack during The English Patient. This is probably not a good sign. So I stepped out of The English Patient and I got on the train to go to Brooklyn where I lived. And uh, I was on the end of the R, the never or the rarely, as we call it, right? For a good reason. Christ. And I'm sitting on the end train, which, you know, taking forever. And uh, suddenly I felt this unstoppable freight train of fear built inside of me. Massive fear. And I didn't know what to do. So I, I'm running up and down the train, trying to get out of the train. And I'm pounding on the doors, trying to get out. And I'm pulling the emergency cord. But, you know, the, the train just keeps moving because no one gives a shit. And I had this full-blown panic attack. I ran to my apartment on Carroll Gardens. And I got into bed. And I was sweating. My heart was pounding. And I realized at that point that this anxiety, this fear, this overwhelming thing inside of me, I had to get a hold of this. And, you know, of course, Barbara Streisand heralded in my big spiritual awakening. But that was when I realized that there was something in me that I had to make a peace with somehow. So that, that was really the turning point like 20 years ago where I started to know that there was something that had to be done. And then it was really, you know, as I always say, like, Probably about six years ago, seven years ago, when meditation started to take over and that sort of stuff, and then things changed. But my whole family's been high-strung. To this day, my sister's still high-strung. My other sisters, I have two sisters, high-strung, anxiety, that sort of thing. So it's nothing I don't know about. And I'm going to add a little coachy thing here. Anxiety, when you don't fight it and surrender to it, is when it goes away, which is the weird thing. That's the strangest thing. When you don't fight anxiety, you surrender to anxiety, it starts to fade away. And that's what I started to finally realize. Like, I'd have panic attacks in meditation. <laughs> that's very strange. And uh, then they would start to, you know, fade away. So, yeah. So from the mall to IBS to a grandmother, mother fighting in Fabric Barn to a mother crapping at the original Starbucks to me on the F train, Barbara Streisand, the mirror has two faces to me now having remote now and then crapping fits when I do something spectacular to a therapist yelling to me, 52, that I'm not my mother, to realizing I don't have, I look down and say, oh, there's a penis, not a vagina, to here I am today. Cue the orchestral finale. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
I can have stress levels, but before it gets to, I, I don't notice it until it gets to a physical manifestation or a panic attack. You said that before. Yeah. Yeah, you said this before, like you didn't, like, like you didn't notice when it would start to manifest itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, what's the tickle? Remember the tickle we talked about? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's the tickle, that's the tickle that I'm noticing now. So now as where I would have had a tickle at eight or at least noticed it at eight. Now I'm noticing it at five. Now I can get it at a three. And now it's like, okay, now I'm managing and now I know how to prevent it. But up until that point, there are multiple narratives and multiple legacies that are passed down that you believe that's just the way that it is. And so it's kind of reframing my world as to what serves me and what doesn't. Which is like you said, it's kind of like it seems it seems completely illogical to say that I'm not my mother and I have to look down and see that I don't have a vagina. But but there is something about me that thinks that I, I have my mother's vagina. I spent years saying I don't want to be my mother. I spent yeah. years and years and years. And it seems that. like completely like it's illogical. How could you th- possibly think that? But, you know, surprise. Well, it's really, I mean, I spent so many years focusing on what I didn't want to be that I was, I didn't, I wasn't clear on what it was that I wanted to be. Yeah, but you've created such a magnificent person, though. You're so magnificent. Like, you're, you're now, luminescent. Thank you. But you the are. years in between. You should see her right now. She, she's, <laughs> she's like a goddess. She's in white. She's got her shoulder exposed. She's got this beautiful pendant that's got this white heart, of course, with this gold chain. She's like, you know, she's dope. Well, thank you. Mm. But, you know, I, I look back and there's a part of me that grieves the years that I spent fighting to not be her. And it's very interesting because I, if when I think about it, I, I feel a grieving coming on. Because I, I, said, I spent so many years as opposed to saying, who, who is it that I am? Who is it that I want to be, right? And painting that picture and going for that, I was so, I was doing the Heisman to what it was that I didn't. And so the now. Heisman? I'm very gay here. What? So the Heisman? the Heisman, if you ever see the Heisman Trophy. No, so the Heisman Trophy, he, he puts his hand up and it, he looks like he's like guarding against Oh, something. yes, I've seen this. I've seen it. What, right? what the hell is it for? What kind of, what kind of sporting event? Football. Football. It's for football, but I have no idea what it's for. Like, I don't know why hey, they man, get a and a woman are here right now, and we're just going <laughs> to go ahead and play our stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I know the trophy. Right. And and that's what I tended to do for all those years. So when I think about that, I, I think that's a grieving good. process. It's, it's interesting. Do you find that you go through a grieving process whenever you think about the times that you had where you were stuck in a cycle? This is the part that I'm more interested in. So I was I was taking a crap this morning. What is it with crap with me today? I don't know. I was know. taking a crap. I don't know. Shit's a big thing. You got to figure out. I got to figure out. Well, today. you get the shit out of your life. I think when you shit a lot, you get the shit. Shit's, shitting's very good. Right. I never have polyps, though. Because of my IBS, the doctor's like, damn, you look good. I was like, thanks, I have IBS. My um, grandmother did used to come out of the bathroom and she would, after taking a shit, and she would say, that was better than sex. Yeah. Oh, here's my favorite. My mother's shits were so bad, my dad had to install a fan in the bathroom. Oh, my God. And then whenever we, we'd be watching TV, and we'd hear the door close, we'd hear, <laughs> she's like, oh, mom, turn the fan on. <laughs> we'd light a candle. They didn't have poopery then. So Mariana's in the room listening, and she's doing what most people do, covering her ears and disgusted at all this shit talk. I, you know, no shame on this show. What I was going to say to you earlier was, when you talked about regret about wishing you hadn't fought with your mother for so long, I was thinking about something. My head went this way. So when I was crapping, I was thinking about how the universe, whatever you want to freaking call it, I call it Mildred now to help people chill out about it. So they're like, you know, Mildred's not nice to me. I'm like, just call her Mildred. Because if you say the word, <laughs> people flip out, right? But so loaded. So I said, how, you know, with Mildred, I think Mildred doesn't hear anything that we say. I think Mildred knows what we're really feeling and thinking about stuff. 
So on the one hand, I would I want to be all positive and say to you, oh yeah, no, I I you know let go of that and be in the present, and I don't have any. But because of a <laughs> of our gifts of moods, when I'm in a great mood, like today is pretty good, and you know. I woke up and I went to the gym and I meditated and took my vitamins and had my coconut water and masturbated to taboo too. And I'm really happy, right? <laughs> so I'm good. Then I can say to you honestly now, some days I'm not haunted and plagued by why am I 54 and now finally in this place where I feel more aligned and balanced and there's a project coming up that I can't talk about yet that I'm dying to talk about that is finally realized. It is what it is. When I'm not like this, I'm like, why did it take so long? Why did I have to suffer? I mean, my 20s and 30s and 40s, I was like, you know, I had a punch card at Domino's. I was like, you know, really into, you know, you know, expandable waistlines, you know. I, I, I was <laughs> sewing. I learned how to sew so I could add <laughs> elastic into my jeans. <laughs> that must be a gay thing, I'm telling you. Oh, it's so never. not gay. It is in certain communities, <laughs> which I don't align with so much anymore. But for me, it's not so much why did I have to go through it because I'm clear why I had to go through it now. Obviously, it's that whole idea of, you know, why? you have to go through that shit in order to I, – I really – and this is going to sound so meme-ish, Facebook meme-ish. Here, here we go. Yeah, but really, I really needed to go through all of that to get to where I am now. I think that's very fucking true. And so when I think about it, but when I sit back and I think about – the trauma that I did experience, there is a grieving process where I grieve the little girl, and I believe this, that I'm grieving the little girl that needed to go through that. Well, that's part of our work. Your relationship to that younger girl, I used to poo-poo this all the time. I thought it was way too Stuart Smalley-like. Mm -hmm. That relationship that transcends time and space with you adulting, being an adult for the younger you, I really do feel that that is a lynch that that's the linchpin, whatever. The turning point for true healing mm -hmm. is our relationship with our younger self. So in meditations, if we if we connect to that younger self, love that younger self. I always say this, but Janina Fisher is a phenomenal psychotherapist who talks about this work. I think that's what changes people. Yeah, absolutely. And so those moments when this does come up, I will sit down literally in a chair, put a chair across for me, and I will close my eyes and I will talk to the little girl who is feeling this way because I, I, my little girl wants to be heard. And wants she to wants to know that you're in charge. No, wants to know that I'm protecting her. Well, that's the same thing. So, and, and so in charge for me means something differently because in charge, especially with a high-strong, high-achieving father, it looks very different. It's almost commanding, demanding. So in control is like a negative dictator. Yeah, it's almost like a dictatorship hmm. whenever I think of it that way. But that's just how I attach. You know, that's my definition of that word. doesn't matter. But yes, my, my little girl wants to know that she's protected and that everything is going to be okay. Everything is okay. Not going to be, but is okay. And so there are moments where I really need to stop and sit down and talk to her. And then I reverse it. If I'm the little girl and I'm talking to the woman that I am now, what is she saying to me? What is, what is it that she needs from me in this moment? And so that really helps me flip everything around so that I can combine those two and say, okay, we got each other. Like, we're good. Mm -hmm. We're good now. So yeah, I don't. I don't really need to know the why, because I the no, why. No, I think that I think that we get tangled. Like he always says, therapy is very two thousand. I'm sure this is gonna get a lot of people going, but I don't care anymore. I, I think the constant ruminations over what occurred matters only so that you can link things up. Right. But I think that beyond that, it's kind of like, well, here you are. So where are you going? I know it's very much in this world, but you know, for me, it's been like, okay, so. <laughs> 
look, I was I, I did the best I could in my 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. I, I could not have done any better than I did. Are there times when I look at someone that is younger than me doing what I wished I would have done? Sure, of course, you know, but what am I going to do besides the time machine? So, you know, I become inordinately interested in buying $200 devices from Madonna that make my face go upward every night, and I roll on things, and I use way too much face cream, and I work out constantly, and that's my way of fighting age. And I think when we get to our age also that we can take a look at the youngins, like the the 20-year-olds, and kind of smile and say, oh, they're going through it. (laughs) But here's the difference. I think people in their 20s are extremely advanced and are coming into the world downloading and receiving and understanding shit at an alarming rate. And I am amazed and shocked at their ability to discern, to understand, to assimilate. I don't get this whole push against that generation. I have to remind myself that some people think that way, but I find nothing but the clarity of people in their 20s is phenomenal now. Do you think it's really assimilation, though, because the 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 suicide rates are higher, the rates of depression, anxiety are higher? Yeah, they can talk about them. Our generation can't talk about it. People in their 20s will talk about it. They want to know about it. It's fascinating. So they're aware of it. They just don't know what the answers are. So they look sometimes at people like us who are, you know, clawed out of the trench. Stripped the podcast, right? (laughs) (laughs) How the hell do I get less depressed? But, I mean, it seems extremely intense, whereas, you know, we didn't have social media. We didn't have the, wow, you know, we walked, you know, three feet in the snow for four miles to school. No, but no, seriously, we didn't have all of these gadgets. We weren't constantly connected. We didn't feel like we needed to keep up a certain persona and social media. But I think we're at the precipice where things are changing, where I think they're understanding. I think that generation, which of which I know many friends in that generation who talk about this a lot, they understand the pivoting that's happening with it now. They're understanding that's bullshit. That's fake. I don't believe that. Give me the real. Give me the true. So social media is changing. Like people are saying, be authentic. Don't give me something that isn't really what you're going through. I want to. So the trend for the stuff that I see on social media that I follow that's real is is awesome. Sure, there's the, you know, look at my dope life and look at how fucking like you know, stellar everything is. But then if you read it, sometimes you're gonna you see. So so I get what you're saying, but I do think that the openness and the receptivity to pivot and to talk about it, they know when something's fake. <laughs> <laughs> they do, and at the same time, you know, people can hide behind anything. They can hide behind sure. family, sure. wealth, the job position that they have. They can also hide behind spirituality and having it all together. What does that mean? So some sometimes people will believe that they're holier than thou because they're more spiritual than other people or they're more well, that's enlightened just, that's than just other people. Well, that's insecurity and arrogance, narcissism. I agree, but what I'm saying is that really the, it's it's another place for them to act as if they're they're better or feel that they're better than everybody else. I think that trend is fading, though. Do you? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just surrounded by different... So, absolutely, I could be, yeah, not seeing it because I don't focus on that. But I'm really seeing an authentic, raw realness coming through on social media saying, we're tired of you saying that everything's great when it's not, but we're also looking for the positive. But then do they flip out and then do they say something that is actually vulnerable? So they can post memes all they want. They don't know. They don't know that they do. It's just the 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 answer. The excitement now is, why do you want to talk about the difficulty? So that's that's why I think we're here saying there's a per, like I always say this. You know, this is you know, uh, stripped podcast. Here comes your branding. There's there's purpose to the pain. <laughs> yeah. There's purpose in the pain. So the purpose of the pain is, 
It's like when I say to people, you ever like go out and you party and you wish you hadn't partied and you're hungover the next day and then you go to bed and you wake up the next morning and you feel like you can like conquer Mount Everest? Mm -hmm. That shift, that contrast is like awesome. We love that. Yeah. But I don't, we don't need that shift anymore is what we're saying. It's like we can just harness that awesome feeling. And I think that the reason for the sadness, the anxiety, and the pain is to give that complexity, that grit. I mean, you're who you are. You're a magnificent individual. And the minute I met you on the phone, I knew you were magnificent, and you are because of what you went through. You're glorious because you were oppressed. That's the beautiful part is the, the rising, the rebirth, the phoenix-likeness, right, mm -hmm. is because of, of you being burned. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I like that one. That. That's a meme. <laughs> is, but it, but is, that's really good, though, isn't it? Yeah, but, but, and with dark it, it, coming it's out. It's true, <laughs> though. I mean, you see a lot of these personalities that are that are larger than like like yours, mm. right? You see personalities that are like that, and you read their background, their biographies, the information that they mm -hmm. put out there, and you see the some of the most horrendous stories. I mean, Oprah. You don't even have to. Well, look at Demi Lovato. Demi Lovato, what she went through. Right. And people that are currently, but when people are currently going through it, it doesn't seem like a, there's a lot of forgiveness in society for people who are going through it. I saw your post with Britney Spears. Yeah. Yes, and let me say something. The, what's happening now, though, which is gorgeous. And if I can, if I can just rampage for just a quick second. Sure. What's happening now is we are being compassionate for people in the midst of shit. That's why it's happening now. So it's happening. So we're saying, yo, this person go is going through a hard time. I'm going to be compassionate for that person because I've been through shit. The awareness, though, now is you're in the middle of it. Okay. You're a well-known person. Okay. Can you talk about what you're going through in the middle of it as you're getting help and there's no shame about getting help? That's awesome to me. Yes. So you meet these celebrities who are now going through shit. Like, I love Demi Lovato and how open she is about her stuff and Britney Spears and their stuff. She just posted that she was, I'm, I'm out of therapy. And I was like, fucking, who does that now? That's fantastic. It's amazing. Well, Katy Perry had that special where she had the therapist on, I forgot what channel it was. I never but saw she, that. It is fantastic. I heard it's pretty strong. So I really love where this is going, that people are, are actually being able to open up, talk about these things, get real with it, and stop hiding behind all of these different facades. It's it's. It's mind-blowing, but going back to what we were saying earlier, I believe the younger generation has much more, and maybe it's just different because I don't know, but it's much more stress on them. It just feels much it's more It's always stressful. been stressful. Everything's always been terrible. I hear that story. It's like everyone's gone through shit all the time. I thank God that I'm 42 and I'm where I'm at and I don't have to run that type of a rat race because I just I just don't care to keep up. Okay, like, here's the deal. I, <laughs> I just don't see it as a rat race. I see they're the part of the glorious rebirthing of our, of our world. That's what I see. This excitement, the unbridled optimism is phenomenal. The truth. Like I talked to their 20s and they're just real. They're like, don't tell me something you don't really think or feel. Be real with me. And I love that. And it's like, that's cool. And I meet people in their 50s like me, and they're like, oh, time to retire and be in a hammock. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I just fucking woke up. <laughs> right. Hammock. It's like, let's, let's do this. So I think we're bridging time and space here. And I think the movement towards individuality, that's what it is. That's what it is. There it is. So it's the expression of the individualness. It's the, I want to express who I really am in the most authentic way I can. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. And either you're going to be part of that with me, and if you're not, I don't have an interest in working with you or being around you. And I love that. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't I don't really notice it with the people that are around me. I have younger people in their early 20s that are like that, but I also believe that it's a regional piece, right? We're talking from New York, 
right? California tends to be a little more yes. individualistic. When yeah. you get to the middle of the country in the south and the north, it tends to be a little bit more, I don't know, 15, 20 years behind. And so it's... Is that really true? It is. From think? my experience, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. I guess a little. But also, I think that when they someone from, like, Nebraska hears this, I think the understanding is they're reaching for this understanding. I think they really are hungry for it. They're just not surrounded by it as much. No, but they're also compounded by other things. I mean, I, I travel to Oklahoma quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I was so, going to ask you about that, actually. So, I mean, being in the Bible Belt, you have religion, mm-hmm. and people will go to church just to say they went to church, right? Living the Christian tenets is one thing, but actually going to church is another. So they just want to look good most of the time from my experience, and the rest of the time they just want to go off and be swingers and do whatever. But in the middle of the country, it tends to be— there's a— uh, I love how you just threw swingers out there suddenly. That's they great. do. I mean, it's the largest swinger community in the United States. There was a great Showtime series about 10 years ago called Swingers. That was just about that, mm-hmm. uh, set in the 70s. But, yeah, no, I, I do find that, like, I think Christianity is pretty cool in many ways. So I can't really diss Christianity. It's just that sort of It's not bad. It's just that. another cog in their wheel of being individuals. And so that's really it. So Can you, can you elaborate on that? There's a lot of judgment from what I see of that's not Christianly, right? The way you're dressed is not very Christian. You're very loud. That's not very Christian. I don't want my neighbors to judge me. And so that that tends to be a lot in the middle of America and in, in the South. That's back to individuality, expression of individuality, you're saying. Right, and there's an oppression there and a repression there that is just, I mean, they may be hearing this and not even grasp what that looks like. We can walk around the streets in New York City and everybody looks different, right? I mean... Yes, but you still get quite a bit of conformity even in New York City. Like when I go out dressed up like I want to, right. I still get looked at. I mean, I mean, not really in any sort of way, but just kind of a, oh, hmm. But I look around me and I'll, everyone's wearing Old Navy and Gap mm-hmm. and kind of this, which is fine, which is fine. I'm not saying it's anything. I'm just saying the the individualityness that you're speaking of, that's yep. not even a fun word. <laughs> it's... um. To do that from a place of calling and not to get a reaction is a fascinating thing to me. And so when I walk around like this, and this is pretty chill for the day. Usually I have my hair up and everything's all done and flashy and whatever. When I walk around Oklahoma, I will stop everybody in the mall. I will walk through and you will see it's like Moses in the Red Sea. Everybody parts, everybody stops, and everybody looks. Whereas in New York, you can walk around like this. And so, you know what? I'm going to bring you to Oklahoma. You've got to check this out. But yes. I'll try to dress down, but I think the last time I dressed down was like 1974. No, don't dress down. <laughs> I'm actually you ever see gonna... me? I'm always in some sort of flashy something. No, don't dress down. Don't dress down. Dress like don't you normally my, would. My style, and, uh, God. Yeah, no, it's 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 really interesting. But I, I believe that they'll get there, and I have hope for that. Hey, so we know there was a lot of information in this last episode. So if you'd like to reach out to us, we're at stripthepodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to leave us a voicemail about what's going on in your life, 201-685-0828.